you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. In her career of 25 plus years, Sarah Agrest, design director at Spectre Group, has seen and designed many different kinds of spaces. A lot of our conversations on the Win Win podcast discuss the importance of building futures for everyone, but Sarah really attempts to consider many factors when designing the very buildings in which innovation takes place, all while attempting to innovate the building process itself. Prior to Spectre Group, Sarah also worked at Datner Architects, was a director of design at Equinox, and spent multiple years at firms such as FX Fowl Architects, The Moderns, and BBJ and Eastman Architects. While Sarah's multiple qualifications speak for themselves, something I really loved about our conversation was that she sees opportunity far beyond what they entail, specifically in the fields of sustainability and the discovery part of working with clients by including them in the process. Her own journey as a woman in innovation also goes beyond the norm. She shares about her very personal connection to Lynn Povich's book, Good Girls Revolt, that is also now an Amazon Prime series. I highly recommend checking it out to learn more about the lawsuit female employees of Newsweek brought against their employer in the 70s. Without further ado, here's Sarah Agrest from Spectre Group. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the Win Win Podcast. How are you? Hi, Zoya. Thanks so much for having me. This is really great to be here and I'm super excited. Same here. So, you know, I can't even sugarcoat it. You've been an architect for 20 plus years. Uh, The question that I wanted to start with is what has kept you consistently present in your discipline and what has changed throughout? That's a great question. I think, you know, the, I think changing things um, for myself, I mean, constantly changing my trajectory intentionally, but also sometimes just letting myself follow a path that, that comes to me. I think allowing myself to sort of broaden my knowledge in terms of a exposure to sort of different disciplines by just sort of tre- tweaking the format. So whether I was sort of following a path to be on the client side or following this vision um, that I really wanted to understand branding and going to an agency. Um, it's all been really intentional, but it's also, I, I've sort of allowed myself to, to do these things in order to sort of keep things fresh. And so what would you say is your approach to design, your design process, and, and how have you refined that throughout the years? My approach is really sort of an investigative um, analysis. I really love to take a deep, deep dive into all of my clients. Um, I love to sort of ask probing questions about who they are. I'm really fascinated by um, the individual stories of a company. I think there's just so much there in the the history of why people came together to do what they want to do. Um, and I really want to bring that out in, in my design work. Um, I really don't believe in applying this sort of artificial layer on top of a company's ethos. I think that the evolution of a really relevant design comes from understanding 
who you're designing for and what they're trying to achieve as a client. So whether it's a, a financial company or whether it's a um, not-for-profit, I really want to understand what their story is, where they came from. And it's these little moments that I hear that really spark this interest where I get really, really excited and, and want to dig deep down and, and find more. And I feel that the design work just flows naturally from that because it's something that you can really bring multiple layers into, but it's also something that the client feels so passionate about. It's something that they can really bring their, their story. They can really bring that to, um, to the table and allow me as a designer to decide how to, how to sort of manifest it in the space. And I always tell them, don't, don't try to think of solutions. Don't try to think of, of how this is going to be brought out in the space. Don't think of it as a physical thing. I just want to hear about it and then let me sort of take that and and let my team sort of take that and, and figure out how to, how to make it work in the space so that it, it's visible to everyone. It's so interesting you say that because many times people use the notion of like walls or space as something limiting, right? Because it is theoretically finite, especially if you live in a 500 square foot apartment in New York City, which I'm not saying I do or I don't live in. <laughs> so how do you approach innovation in the space and and how do you define that aspect of bringing innovation to the space? You know, I think, again, it comes down to what they what what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve. I think it's these little moments that I hear when I, I do, we do a lot of workplace strategy. That's been a part of what I do for a really long time. I, I started to understand what that was when I was at a branding agency. And it's really interesting. Um, and it helps you sort of measure yourself as well, because there are things that that you want to dig into that they, you realize are really part of who they are that you really can't change. And that was a, I think a huge realization that I had about innovation is that it's not about changing everything. It's about bringing out those really interesting artifacts that you find in their, um, in their history and in what they do and sort of like short of shining a light on those things, but then allowing the things that really, are who they are to stay grounded in their roots because that really is that that's how that's who they are. And I, a client was really honest with me and they were trying to get out of the space that they were in, which was not in the design in the interior design world. They were more known in sort of these random, they were known in automotive, they were a textile company. They had their textiles and cars and boats and RVs dental chairs. It was really sort of random. And they were like, how do we break through into the interior design market and have designers specify us? They were, they had a Japanese sort of parent company and they were pitching science as their sort of the, their sort of differentiator. And we took that and we sort of tweaked it a little bit. And we said that science is, is interesting, but it's not always uh, appealing to designers and let's, make it technology because that is appealing. And it didn't, it didn't change who they were. It was just how we framed it. And from there, we really were able to like launch into this whole campaign that really centered on technology. And, and it was interesting because they were holding on to some of these older things, but we had to, to let, they were saying, you know, we have this 
you know, 30 year company, we can't let go of some of these things that really, we can't abandon who we were because we have to still keep um, those customers and we have to still keep that grounding. And I, and I, that was really a light bulb sort of went off. It's like, how do you keep who people are, but bring this level of innovation um, and take them into the future? And, and it always involves taking them out of their comfort zone. But I think that's, that's really how you innovate because um, you've just got to push the, the limits just that much um, in order to, to get them farther than they knew that they needed to go. I think you bring up a lot of very interesting points, but one I wanted to kind of probe more a little bit into was uh, you brought up workplace design, and workplace strategy. And I think that's one thing that's 100% been turned on its feet, uh, probably without a choice because of the pandemic and the way that we understand the, the notion of an office and a home and spaces as a whole. So how have you tackled this problem yeah, I mean, for anyone who works in a collaboration um, field where it's really important that you are together in some way, it's been a challenge. And for clients, too, and we've really seen ourselves in you know where I work, it's really important that we keep workplace alive because we do workplace design. So we've really made it a point to be in the office as much as we can safely because we really believe in workplace. And, and in New York City, um, I've said this before, there's this sort of like, I don't know, this madman mentality. I think people really like to get dressed up and go to work. And the New Yorkers are too vain to be in their sweatpants all day. And um, they really want to get out and be seen. But I've really been working with my teams and sort of taking this opportunity to get people to develop their, their design processes. Rather than sort of marking things up and sending them off, which is so disconnecting, I've been sort of bringing the team together and talking through my thought process live. So sort of marking up a drawing. I feel like I'm like a like Bob Ross. I'm like drawing <laughs> and telling people what I'm doing. You know, this is why I, I'm making this decision. I think that this this is, you know, where we need to go with this and, and drawing as I as I talk. And then it, it sort of prompts other people to join in and talk about their thoughts. And I think it's just so much more collaborative than this anonymous sort of marking things up and sending them off to somebody. And then the back and forth that, that inevitably comes out of not understanding where, where it came from. I'm like a huge proponent. I think I drove my teachers crazy as a kid. I always had to know why, 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 why? Like, I want to know you know, why decisions were made or why things are. And so I, I maybe over explain things sometimes, but I, I just think it's so important when people are designing to understand what, what prompted that, where it came from, the relevance. And I think it applies to any industry, really. Like, I feel like I work in the financial services sector. And I think the approach that you take when you're on Zoom all day is divide and conquer, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, let's have this meeting, talk about what needs to get done. And then in between, there's all this, excuse the pun, space. And then you come back and things just get lost in translation almost. So I think that's really interesting. Um, Something I was also really curious about was um, on your LinkedIn, next to your name, you have about a million acronyms. And I won't even begin to understand what they mean, but one of them specifically stood out to them, and that is LEED, so Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Um, How has sustainability and your concern for the environment caused you to change what was considered normal in your practice maybe 10 or 15 years ago? 
Well, at the time I was working for um, a design firm that was really at the forefront of sustainability and architecture. Um, I was really fortunate to be there during the height of sort of this awareness and sustainability. Um, it's really interesting. And, and I, I've explained this. I did like a little class when my my son was in kindergarten. I For Earth Day, I did an architecture presentation and I did this whole project with them where I had everybody bring a shoebox and we designed the shoebox as like our space. And then I explained urban sprawl. I had them all sort of lay their their shoeboxes out um, on the carpet in the classroom. And by the way, if you ever want like some serious entertainment, have a have a kindergarten class, like design a shoebox. So I had them lay them out. And then I said, what's a way to sort of save more space? And they all started stacking the shoeboxes into towers. And we had this whole city of shoeboxes in the classroom. And I started talking to them about like the benefits of stacking. And in New York City, people think of pollution and they think of, I don't know, all this concrete. And they don't think about the fact that living on top of each other is actually sustainable because we're sharing heat and we're taking up less space. And so, yeah, so we had this little, this little intro to urban sprawl, but, but this teacher has kept in touch with me. And every year I send her a bag of materials from the library because she's continued this tradition with the kindergarten class, but it was something that I was doing sort of at the same time working at this, this design firm that was really at the forefront of, of sustainability. I mean, and to really be practicing sustainability at the time. And I was working on some really phenomenal projects for some really great clients for SAP, the Audubon society, Rockefeller brothers. These were all um, lead platinum projects. And all companies that really had a strong ethos with sustainability. So I was able to really, to really put what I was learning to, you know, to practice right away. And, and it was really great. I think at the time lead was, um, it was still young, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I think one of the things that frustrated me was that in the system, there were all these points for doing things that were sustainable um, adding recycled materials and um, lighting and having good daylight, all but there was no accountability for bad choices, which I found really interesting. So you could still have PVC in a project, you could still have formaldehyde, you could still do all these things in a project that were not sustainable. So. I was a little frustrated by by this sort of accounting system because when you have a system like that that's only counting the good things and not taking into account all the bad things, it just sort of I don't know it didn't it it made it it made lead for me at the time really just a measure it, it was like sort of an award that that companies really wanted to display at their door but it, it didn't necessarily mean that they truly wanted to be sustainable um, unless they sort of let us really um, hold ourselves to task and and not not use the materials and 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 practice the practices that we're taking away from that. So, but I think it gave designers really the license to understand that um, you can be sustainable without being sort of given credit for it. That it's the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. Today, I really feel like sustainability has sort of. I, I think it started to involve in general um, 
and not just sort of what's good for the earth and the environment, but what's good for people too. So human health, um, and that sort of has, has sort of led more into inclusivity. So human health, mental health, those are things that we really, really think about in our work. So it's, a, it's the whole body mentality because, you know, it's not just what we do for the earth, but it's what we do for people who are going to be occupying the office. And, um, and we want to be a part of sort of making sure that what we're doing in our office is, is embracing all of that. And we're not sort of forgetting about things. It's like when people think of ADA, you know, it's like a classic, classic thing. Um, people think of wheelchairs and they don't think about people who are hearing impaired and sight impaired. There are so many disabilities. And I think it's the same thing with sustainability. It's the same thing with inclusivity. It's not just um, sort of the gender issues or the physical physical things that, that people think about. It's the, the things that are unseen, mental health. We talk a lot about with someone who may be on the spectrum, what it's like to work in an office space and, and need a place to go um, with less stimulus or to really, you know, you can't predict that everything, but to really take a deep dive into understanding all of those pieces because they all fit together into to well-being, um, which is so, so important, especially now. Um, here at WIN, Women in Innovation, we're always talking about how our mission is about building a better future for everyone. And of course, that can't happen without women as active participants in innovation and you know, in the building itself, if you will, you are literally building and designing the future. And you're a senior woman in an industry that, like most, happens to be male. What do you see as the value of women in architecture? And what role has gender played in your own life? It is a male-dominated industry. And it's really funny because I was brought up in not really sort of thinking about male versus female. Um, and I, I don't think it was something I was really aware of for a while. My mom was incredibly influential in who I am as um, in terms of being a woman in a male dominated space. Um, my mother was a reporter um, starting in the, the late 60s in New York City, and she really led by example. I, I didn't know the model of like stay at home mom. I didn't understand that. I just always saw my mom as like a real hustler. She bought me the set of yellow trucks. I, you know, I really love these trucks and there's all these like mortifying photos of me, like shirtless, like in a, in like just in pants playing with these construction trucks um, in the park and, and looks, you know, it looks like a little boy playing in the sandbox. And it's like, I, it's interesting because I think she was so ahead of her time. It wasn't just about, it wasn't about gender, but she just, she grew up in a time where she didn't love these rules that were, I think, assigned to women in terms of the color pink and the, and the sort of role about who, who you wanted, who you needed to be. It was an intentional, I think, allowing um, sort of development as a person, not necessarily development as a woman. And I think a lot of people think, or feel that that you have to really push this the, the feminism side hard, but I think I, I do believe in being a strong person, and that's what I was sort of grown up to to believe. Is just that I never saw myself as a female architect. I saw myself as an architect. 
it's really interesting because um, my mom ended up passing away in 1999. And I kind of went on this exploration a little bit more about who she was more as a person. And, and I was having dinner with my mom's college best friend, I think about five years ago. And she said, um, did you hear that Susie was in a book? And I, I hadn't heard that she was in a book. And, and um, she told me about it. And she had told me that Lynn Povich, who was one of the, my mom's colleagues at Newsweek, had written a book called The Good Girls Revolt. I think the subtitle is How the Women of Newsweek Sued Their Bosses and Changed the Workplace. I was absolutely like taken aback. Um, I had heard a little bit about this. It was like a big thing in, in the early seventies, but I, to hear that my mom was actually part of like a women's movement was, was really fascinating. And it was such a momentous, um, sort of a momentous movement about women in, in journalism who were doing all the reporting, um, doing all the investigating, writing the articles and then passing them off to men who would actually sort of maybe change a word or two and then publish it. And the women were never published. They were all sort of kept behind, behind the scenes. And so they, they sued to be part of, of really be considered part of the workforce, being able to have the title of reporter of journalist. And they were planning these meetings in bathrooms in in Newsweek. I've, I've tried to sort of embody that in my work, leading by example. And, and, and it is tough. There's a lot of, um, it's gotten better, but there's a lot of men. Um, it's not just the, the architects, but the construction industry is tough. And because I never, I never was sort of taught that I'm a woman and I have to overcome these things, but I'm, I am a person who has worked hard to get where, where I am that I never sort of felt like I never felt like a victim. And that, I mean, I don't mean to use that word lightly. There's some, you know, terrible, terrible things that happen to people. Um, but I felt that it gave me that empowerment in difficult situations to sort of not default to feeling like I was put upon because of my gender or, I, I felt like I was on equal playing ground and then I was able to sort of deal with it in a manner um, that I, I wasn't sort of using any kind of thinking about it as a gender issue, um, even if it was. It's always to me been about like your strengths and people, things that you really feel like you're good at and really things that make you happy and pushing those things forward um, to sort of build build a strong um, resiliency. And I, I, I truly think that that's, that's helped, um, just even in terms of now, there's just this resiliency that you need in order to operate in this, the, the crazy times that we're, we're in right now. And finishing up the podcast and speaking of the times, I'd love to ask an innovation question. We ask all of our guests and that is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? One month from now, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that we're going to still be pretty close to where we are, though I think with every, with every month, I think it's been a little bit more difficult. I feel like everyone's got this weight, and I feel like the weight increases a little bit every month. 
but I think that also with every month, the, the light at the end of the tunnel seems to shine a little bit brighter a year from now. I really hope and, and, and think that people will be really excited to be back in the workplace. And I think there's this newfound appreciation. I don't know if you've seen it, but because we've been deprived of so many things for so long, it's almost to me like this, the things that we saw as sort of benign or drudgery are now exciting it's sort of reset everyone's appreciation. And so I'm really hoping that, that in a year, everyone will feel thankful and grateful and excited. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of innovation that comes, that comes out of that. 10 years from now, that's, a, <laughs> that's like a hard one, mainly because I don't want to think about myself in 10 years. I'm, I'm at that point. I, I'm really excited about the future. And I think um, like selfishly, I'm excited to see where my kids are going to be in 10 years because they're the next generation and I'm constantly inspired by them. I, you know, I, I hope see a more integrated workplace. I think we'll be there. I think we've learned so much from this pandemic and I think that everyone's proven that, um, they can work from home to some extent. I think eye-opening on a on a trust basis for companies to to trust their employees more and empower them more. And we've been talking for so many years in workplace design about the workplace can be in so many places, but we've never been able to really practice that. And so I I hope in in ten years I think people will be living more balanced lives. Um, so I think in ten years there's going to be just a more integrated approach to to work and, and life. I mean, it's very simple, but um, I think that's something that's sort of been such a division for such a long time. Um, I think a lot of people think that it's just going to be a rubber band. It's just going to snap back and everybody's going to be in offices again. Everyone's there's going to be that imbalance again between work and life. But I, I feel that the, the sustained situation and the evolution, it's had time to evolve. And I think that that is going to allow some of these things to take root and become part of our sort of permanent life fabric. And I think that people are also going to fight for it to keep that balance and to sort of really be able to, to finally live sort of like a holistic life where they feel good about what they're doing because they're able to, um, to do what they need to do, be where they want to be. And collaborate when they want to collaborate and be in the office and get that, that sort of zap of, of energy and collaboration, but then be able to, to be home or to, to travel and, and to bring all that inspiration back to, back to work. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the win-win podcast. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you so much. So it was really a pleasure. Thank you for bringing all this stuff out. I think it's such an important podcast. Um, and I'm really, truly grateful, inspired, humbled to be um, invited with all of the inspiring women that you've chosen to join you. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, 
when women innovate, we all win.